Hi, this is class number 15 of the Fairy and Fantasy class. Today we return for a look at Gowan's final temptation and the puzzling ending of the poem. We were just up to the girdle last time. Uh, what's at stake with the girdle? First of all, let's make sure we get the setup right. We were talking about Sir Gowan and the lady last time, and... Her th- the third day on which she pushes him harder and harder until she finally gets him to say, I'm not into it. Thank you, but no. And her response to this is to start sort of the last phase. Okay, I'll stop pushing. But she starts pushing in a different direction. What's the first request she makes? we get a sort of a little mini set of three. This is the third day in which he's had to resist her advances. And now on this third day, we get three proposals, which he also has to resist, and they follow in the same pattern. He succeeds completely in the first two times, and the third time, almost but not quite, right? Sort of mapping outwards onto the three days. Erin, what happens? She asks him for a gift. She asks him for a gift. What's her suggestion? A glove. A glove, yeah. Give me a glove or something. Right, give me some... What, why? What's the point? What's she asking for? She's got gloves, apparently. His are unlikely to fit her anyway. What's the significance of this? Why does he say no? Okay? It's a token of disaffection. You ask for a gift. Yeah, this is a love token. At the very least, a keepsake... At the best, a kind of pledge. Yeah. But does it also have to do with, you know, the fact that his five thing- fingers are one of his five fives, so to speak? It, uh, it's interesting. It seems possible. I mean, I guess he can't leave his five senses behind, right? That would be, that would require surgery. But, uh, the, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it is a kind of a fitting keepsake of him, in a sense, right? Um, Gloves were often tokens of pledges. This is why, for instance, you uh, would take off your glove and throw it at somebody, usually their feet, when you're challenging them to a duel. Um, right? That would be your gauge. Um, so that's, that's sort of a comment. So Gowan knows what to do here. No, no, no. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not giving you my glove. There will be no pledge. There will be no evidence afterwards, which, is, which would call the whole thing into question. I mean, it, it would be hard for him to defend himself. Oh, yes, mm, you resisted my wife, right? That's why she's got your glove, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh, sure, sure. You were alone in the house and did nothing but just innocently swap gloves. And, so, I mean, it would be awkward. It would be awkward. But, of course, also, he's still in the same situation as before. He can't say, heck no, I'm not giving you my glove, So what does he say? Once again, successfully treading his narrow Sir Gowan path between clanness and courtesy. I think what he says is um, his glove isn't like a worthy enough gift for her. And if he had all these other jewels and riches with him, he would willingly give them over, but he does not. Exactly. And I love how he's like, unfortunately, I didn't bring a porter. Right. If I had like guys with me who are just carrying trunks of treasure on this particular quest, you know, wow, I really wish that I had that available to me. But, but no, no, I don't. And this, of course, is standard, the standard approach he's been using most of the time all the way through. Um, it's kind of fun 
we haven't had time, but it's kind of fun to actually look uh, in detail at the different sort of thrusts and parries of their exchanges as we go along. And uh, it's what we see is this is one of his favorite approaches. I'm going, to, I'm going to say no by complimenting you. Oh, no, 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 I am unworthy. Um, you deserve so much better than this. I couldn't possibly dream of doing that, right? So then she shifts to request number two, which is what? Take my ring. I'll give you a ring. And he says, no, no, I don't think so, right? That's an even ob- more obvious problem than the last time. Let's not exchange rings, okay? Um, no, no. And again, here he can be, oh, no, I'm, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy. No, no. Then she goes to suggestion number three. Oh, well, then in that case, take my girdle. Here, first let me take it off where I have it, you know, uh, Anyway, here, I'll remove my... It's not an undergarment. I mean, it's not underwear that she's taking off. It's a belt or sash. But anyway, still, it's awkward, right? And it seems like an obvious increase in awkwardness rather than decrease. She's not sort of saying, well, let me give you something that's even harder to refuse. This is easier to refuse, right? Uh, Okay, look, if I wouldn't give you my glove and I wouldn't take your ring, why would I take your girdle? I mean... Seriously. And he says no. What's at stake? Why does he say yes? What's the issue here? Beth? She tells him they don't protect the nerve from harm. Yeah. Oh, by the way, did did I mention that it makes you decapitation proof? You know, like in case that might ever be handy. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? Well, maybe... You know, I could borrow it or something. It's important because he clearly at least has convinced himself that he's not failing in either of the ways that were primarily at stake all the way through. All of a sudden, at the end, in a sense, the grounds shift. Cleanness, courtesy, cleanness, courtesy. Can you be true to both? All the way through, and then at the end, hey, I... Okay, actually, I... It's not unclean. He's already refused it, right? He's, he's, it's, it's really clear. This is not a love token. I can accept that under those circumstances without violating my cleanness, my sexual purity. Sure. Sure you can, Gallant. Is there a problem? What is the problem? One of the big things that I want to be looking at, because, of course, there are different opinions on this. I don't mean among readers. That goes without saying. But there are different opinions about this in the book itself, in the poem. That is, why is, how big a deal is his taking of the girdle, and what makes it a deal, big or small? Mac? Technically, the taking of the girdle itself isn't a big deal, but by the agreement made with the Lord, he should have to give it to him at the end of the day when he comes back. However, he also can't do that because he made an agreement with the lady not to tell the Lord that he has it, so he's kind of stuck in a rock and a hard place and takes it all. Good, exactly. And that's the clearest indication that we have that there's obviously a problem here, right? 
he may be able to say, you know, to himself or whatever, that he has not compromised either cleanness or courtesy. But he's obviously made a misstep because now he has to be... He, he, there is no middle path anymore. He now has to be untrue to somebody. He either, either has to expose her and break his promise to her, or he has to violate the pledge that he made to the husband to give him everything that he earned during the day. So it's, it's now impossible for him to get out of this without violating a promise, without being untrue to somebody. Clearly, we're in trouble now, more than he was before. I mean, again, remember, it seemed like he was in an awkward position before, but he got out of it, the whole kiss swap thing, right? But there's no... He doesn't even have that kind of an option anymore. Marta? I feel like um, another aspect of it that, it's, that also makes it worse is that when he first made the deal with the Green Knight back in the court, he purposefully like, closed all loopholes. Now he's like, oh, here's another one, and he takes it. So I yeah. feel like that's pretty dishonorable. Yeah, I agree. And, I mean, it might seem... You know, we can say, well, that's understandable. You know, I mean, he's in a... Like, you could say, well, I mean, surely he's justified in looking for loopholes as, as you know, like, obviously, the Green Knight knew a loophole, i.e., decapitation is going to kill me as you think it's going to. So, like, that was a little unexpected. But, but I agree. It certainly is him entering into it now in a very different spirit than he did before, um, which the Green Knight seemed really to admire. Um, he is now... And we were focusing on how he was not trying to get out of it at all. You know, how he was um, not looking for, like, for instance, how, we, how diligently he really did search for the Green Chapel and how much he seemed really to want to find it. Um, whereas you would think, if, again, if you were in the looking for loopholes mindset, what more convenient then? Well, gosh, I, high and low have I looked for the Green Chapel. Didn't find it. Guess I have to go home with my head after all, right? That would be easy, the easiest possible loophole. <laughs> But he doesn't seem even to want that. Um, so yeah, this is that that is that is a shift, and I agree that that's something that's. It does suggest he's now screwing up, at least some. But why is that a big deal? I mean, look. I mean, what does the Green Knight say to him afterwards? I mean, he says lots of intimidating things at first, right? We get this wonderful setup for the final test, right? Between the, the plant, who is obviously a plant, who guides him to the Green Chapel and is like, did I tell you how much this guy just loves killing people? I mean, everyone who comes by, he kills them. I mean, this is like his favorite thing, murdering anybody he can find. No one has ever failed to be murdered by this guy. And then he offers, he, te- he gets another test. I mean, Gowan passes another test kind of on the side here, right? He offers him, the guide from the castle offers him, if you run away, I promise, I'll never tell anybody that you were a coward. And Gowan passes this, no, 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 no problem, I'm going. And then the Green Knight does a whole elaborate, like, I'm, you know, flamboyantly sharpening my axe and everything. And, it's, it's, and then, afterwards... What's his assessment? Of course, we learn that the Green Knight is his host from the castle. Right? What do we learn? What does he say? What's his assessment? Emily? You know, pretty good job. I think that's about as best it could be. I mean, like, if you didn't lie down the way, if you came and found me, your only problem was you wanted to stay alive. I can't believe you for that. Yeah, yeah. You, you lacked but a little. 
he says. You like but a little. I mean, that was like a 98%. It's like it still averages to like A or A plus what he got on that whole. I mean, if you consider the whole thing from the, from the moment he's, he, you know, stands up and requests to take the game from Arthur through that moment when, you know, the, the, the green knight nicks his neck and he jumps back and says, okay, test over. He did really well, almost as well as it is possible to do, not quite as well as it's possible to do. And as the Green Knight emphasizes, hey, you know, man, like, it's no big deal. The only thing that you didn't, there were so many bad ways that you could have screwed up, and you avoided all of them. Your only problem was that you loved your life, and so you're the less to blame. No big deal. In fact, he uses strong language to describe Sir Gowan and how delighted he is. This is clearly a win. He describes him in that wonderful image. He's like a pearl among peas, right? All the other knights are peas, and you're a pearl. So come back and let's party some more. Now we're going to really start partying. Jordan, what's, what's, what goes on here? Something that's always bugged me about this is if Gwen had passed completely, wouldn't he be dead? Like, that just seems kind of... I mean, I, I know in theory if he's dead immediately, there's a paradise, given how faultless he is, but it just seems like you'd kind of want to fail a little. Well, no, if he'd... I don't think he would have gone that far. Yeah, I think if he, I think the only reason he even got nicked is that he didn't give the belt back. I think if he passes the belt test, either time, he's got two chances to pass the belt test, right? Perfect passing would be saying no to, the, to it at the, the But then he still get, has like a backup opportunity to hand it over at the end of the day, right? And if he'd done either one of those things, I think that he just like, you know, misses completely or something. Whereas if he... Yeah, I mean, had he messed up worse than he did. Uh, now, it's kind of unclear, like, exactly how, how delicate of a sliding scale the Green Knight was going to be using, right? Had you only, like, accepted, like, had you given her a glove, but not on these other things, then I would, like, merely have incapacitated you for life. But, you know, I mean, I, I don't know, like, how many, like, the, what the shades were between complete decapitation and, uh, and, I mean, remember, you laugh. Don't forget Sir Orfeo's courtyard, Right? These are the fairies we're talking about. Who knows what they can... I mean, and and it, was, it was them who equipped Sir Bertolac to, to have his, you know, head apparently reattached, right? I say apparently reattached. It was reattached. Uh, I mean, he seemed... He was genuinely... He, I don't think he was a phantom, actually, in Arthur's court. So apparently they can do this. You know, they've got... So, so I don't know. I don't know what the plan was. Um, but it seems pretty clear. Death was going to be the punishment for failure, but all he got was a little... Well, what does he get? How, did you notice? How does the Green Knight describe the Nick? Do you remember the terms that he uses? What's the function of the, of the neck nicking? Is it punishment? Okay, remember? Um, isn't it just to remind him, like, it's one moment of cowardice and wanting to live? Like, he 
he talks about it that way later on when he shows the scar, because it's healed by the time he gets back to Arthur's court. Um, and he shows the scar and does talk about, you know, it's, it's, it, it's going to be a reminder for the rest of his life of his failure. So he comes home with two reminders, right? The green sash, which he's gonna, always going to wear, which is at least for him a reminder of his failure, and the scar on his neck. So he's got the one thing which he is taking on himself voluntarily and could take off if he wanted to, and the other which, of course, he can't take off if he wants to. Um, so that's, that's true. I just—it seems like if he was let out of a, then wouldn't Sir Goodlock be pushing his way to hit him back, which would be like a transfer the blame to him because clearly a deliberate miss doesn't count because there was one of those. It's kind of a what if thing, but it's interesting. It, it affects is. the story a lot. I think it is hard to answer, but the thing that we're told is that Sir Bertolac does say the nick on the neck is because of your failure. And the language that he uses to describe that is let's see this is on page 180 Sir Gowan who's really quite upset asks him asks the green knight let us may overtake your willa, and if they shall be wara. Um, you, know, he's, uh, you know, he talks about bearing the blame. Um, you know, help me to... If they shall be wara, I shall always be... You know, be, I shall always try to avoid this. What's going, you know, he, he's clearly seeing himself, here and in other places, as tainted. He even says, like, there's, there's, there's no atonement for what I've done. I can't make this up. I am now... I am flawed. And the Green Knight responds, He hauled it hardly whole, the harm that he had. Don't worry, you don't have to make up anything to me. It's all good now. Thou art confessed so cleaner, be knewen of the of the missus, and has the penance apert of the point of Minaja. It was penance, you see. It was like confession. There he is kneeling, and he rises clean. And the penance that he was assigned, he's already paid. The penance was the nick on the neck, says the Green Knight. So no problem, Sir Gowan. You had a small taint, and now it's done. You're a pearl among peas. I don't know if you have the same experience I do that when you read or listen to Sir Gowan and the Green Knight a lot, you find yourself alliterating and you can't help it. Does this happen to you? I can't. I mean, I mean, it's all I could do to stop myself short that previous sentence before I went on to say, like, you know, let's go back to my place and party. And I mean, it's because you're a pearl among peas. Whatever. It's, 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 I find it really insidious, actually, through the rest of my day. I, I'm sort of alliterating and hoping people don't notice. But anyhow... Um, <laughs> Gowan doesn't accept this. Gowan has a very different perspective 
on himself and on the situation than the Green Knight does. And he won't go home with him. We get back to Arthur's court. And everybody's ecstatic. Holy cow, he's alive! And he tells the story. And what's Gowan's response to telling the story? He tells the whole thing, Taylor. Essentially, like, I'm a failure. I'm sorry, I failed you all. And Arthur, I'm pretty sure, doesn't he just look at him like, why is this a big deal? I'm glad you're alive. Everybody loves it. He is making what is clearly to him a public confession, a public humiliation. He's, 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 he's blushing and feeling horrible, but he's openly confessing. He's not holding back. I will explain all the ways that I failed, and here's the scar on my neck, and that, this is, that's the significance of this belt that I'm now going to wear for the rest of my life to remind me of my failure and my weakness. And everybody says whatever, you're awesome, that was great, that is a fantastic, like that's, that is a, such a win, huge win, good job, Gowan, in fact, we're all gonna, I have an idea, let's all wear green sashes, that looks awesome, we're gonna be like the green sash knights now, <laughs> just because we all want to be as awesome as Gowan is, He's a he is a trendsetter, it's like it becomes a fad in, the, in Arthur's court, it's like a fashion trend, Right? But, but, but there's more than that. It's not just that they're so shallow that they don't think about it at all. They seem to be quite self-consciously reversing its significance. Gowan, for, for Gowan, this is like, it's a badge of shame. Right? And they are all self-consciously taking what he sees as a badge of shame upon themselves. As a direct compliment and encouragement to him. Well, you know, I, we... And this is not like we're all going to join you in shame, Sir Gowan. We think that you are f- f- so far from shame, we think that this is a great honor for you. And we all want to share in that honor with you. Um, so we're going to take that as an honor. So they, in this way, by their actions, seem to disagree with his assessment of his own performance at least as strongly, and possibly even more so than the Green Knight did. who was already laughing again and ready to go home and have some more revelry. Jordan? Um, uh, Gawain is placing the, the shame within a religious context repeatedly. Uh, admittedly, a couple times in the uh, sketchy religious context when he wants to tire against women. Um, and I think the, the fact that he's aware of sin in that extent is, is a, a very, you know, is uh, to some extent the virtue is not shame. It's the, the fact that he's aware of his flaws within a Christian context is, you know, a good thing. They remind him, hey, you, you're humble. You're not ashamed. You're humble. There's a very strong difference there. Yes, that's true. Though, not accepting atonement is not so good. Um, I mean, if he's actually going to hold it, I don't want to, I mean, he just makes one little side comment about it, and I don't want to sort of fixate on that and make it into a major heresy by Sir Gowan. But if he really actually were to mean what he says about saying there's no, there's no way he can be cleansed from this taint, that's actually heretical. 
we see him in a conspicuous moment doing exactly that. What does he do the stanza after he accepts the green girdle from the lady? He goes to confession and confesses himself clean as the day he was born. And the priest is like, I pronounce you pure. See, I'm doing it again. Anyway, um, it, I, it's, you're, you're, you're fine. You're fine. There's, there's no sin on you anymore. That's what confession does. Confession and, 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 and you know, with, if, if a contrite person goes to confession and is absolved. Now, again, it's conspicuous because you cannot, by definition, confess a sin that you either, A, have not yet committed, asking for forgiveness in advance is a massive evasion, which lots of people have tried, but uh, you're not fooling anybody. And also, one that you are currently in the middle of doing, which is what he's doing here. I mean, he still has the girdle. He's not given it up. And while he has the girdle in his possession, planning not to give it over to the husband when he returns home, he goes to confession and confesses himself clean, cleanly. But he's not actually clean then. I want to look at... I think that there is... And, you know, Jordan, you're right. There's a very important... It is a spiritual thing. It's not simply, I think, a moral thing. Because, again, he didn't fail. This is not... Even the terms that he uses to accuse himself... Afterwards, you know, what are the two sins he accuses himself of? Immediately. As soon as he finds out what happened. We're alliterating on C in this line. Cowardice and covetousness. Yes. Cowardice and covetousness. Yes. Now, covetousness, technically. Not covetousness in a simple materialistic sense. He certainly wasn't guilty of being like, oh man, sweet girdle, I want that thing. Right? I mean, the ring was a heck of a lot more valuable, so if it were just a monetary issue, like, you know, no big deal. Um, so it's not covetous in that kind of sense, but it is technically covetous in the sense that he desired something and kept it. Cowardice? Well, yeah. Yeah, it was. Now again, the green, as the Green Knight says, not much cowardice it wasn't that bad but but it, it's in that category why well we get some reminders leading up to it reminders from Sir Gowan's own lips several of which happen after he has received the, he already has the girdle in his possession These are the ones I'm going, to, I'm going to read are all afterwards. Look at page 164. Actually, I want to start on the page before, 162. This is when Sir Gowan is saying no to the offer for the, his guide to conceal his cowardice if he chooses to run away. When he says, no, 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 I'm going to the Green Chapel and I'm going to face this guy... He ends that statement by saying, line 2138, Full well condricht in shapa, his servant is for to save. 
What is the crowning reason why he's going to go ahead and face the green knight? Because well can the Lord shape to save his servants. I'm, I'm God's servant and I trust myself to him. He can, if he wants to save me, he can. This is like a David and Goliath moment here. And I think it's one of the stories actually that we can and should be remembering, biblical stories, that is. Um, Gowan shows a moment of this. In the biblical story, you have Goliath, who's enormous, and, you know, has huge weapons and armor and everything else, and he's defying the army of the Israelites and asking somebody to come up and fight him one-on-one. And when David, the shrimpy little shepherd boy with no military training and no weapons, shows up and hears him defying the armies of Israel, David's response, counter to everybody else's response, is he says, but this is a no-brainer. This would be a completely one-sided fight. I mean, one-sided against him. Because, uh, uh, like, this is not Goliath versus whoever from Israel steps out there. This is Goliath versus the Lord God Almighty. No-brainer. Come on, people. Right? Um, Gowan says, look, the, the Lord... The Lord can save his servants. If God protects me, then it doesn't matter. The Green Knight could be four times as big and strong and delighting in murder than he is. It doesn't matter. And he reiterates the same thing towards himself on the next page. At the end, at the the, the wheel of the next stanza. Be God itself, quoth Gawain. He will another great negrona. To God is will he am full bine, and to him a half metona. I have taken myself, I have given myself to God. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to worry. It seems kind of like the way you have a very uh, self centered pilot. Like a He's, he's very consciously virtuous and he overtly, you know, praises God, but he seems to focus more on his own virtue than on what he receives divinely. Like in, in those standards you just quoted, he's saying, okay, God's going to save me, but I'm, you know, internally thinking, no, this magic girdle will save you, which I have gained by the power of my raw sex appeal. <laughs> well, that's the problem. That's exactly the problem, is that those things are in conflict. And moreover, the thing you were talking about earlier, where, um, where the way you say that this can never be, this can never be healed, this is a, a blight on my soul that cannot be fixed. Like you said, God could fix it. Like you, you go to confession for that. But to Wayne, it's like, I have failed. And since, everything, since his piety is built on his personal virtue, it really can't be fixed. So he's doing religion wrong. That would make it a really big deal. Even if it doesn't seem like a really big deal. But yeah, I mean, that exactly, that's exactly why it seems. And we get this you know, between the confession and his reminders here. And then... Uh, and then afterwards, uh, I won't read it, but two pages forward on 168, you know, he's, he, he's just like, look, okay, like, the worst case scenario here is that I, I die, is that I lay down my life. That's the language that he uses, that I lay down my life. And, you know, 
So as he's not even saying, like, God is my magic genie in a bottle that I know will, will definitely save me because he will do whatever I ask. He's saying, well, you know, it, God is strong to save. He, he could do that. And if he doesn't, well, then I die. Uh, you know, and that's not, ontologically speaking, a big deal. But, exactly as you say, Mac, all of this is undermined by the fact that he's taken out this insurance policy. And if the whole Lord God Almighty thing doesn't pan out, I've got the magic girdle to fall back on. That's a problem. That's a pretty serious problem. It's like if uh, Elijah went to challenge the priest of Baal to have a can of lightning to the Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a good parallel. I think that's a good parallel. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, I don't know, there are a couple sort of things that we could talk about. I think there, there are several things that are really interesting here. One thing that I find really fascinating about the end of this poem is the extent to which the ending always feels unsatisfying. Because Gowan's story itself is never resolved. We end with that division between him and Arthur's court. He is still ashamed. He does not think he deserves honor, and they heap honor upon him. And again, I think sometimes one can sort of see Arthur's court and their response as like a completely brainless response, like that they're just really shallow and don't, don't understand at all, and he's sort of seeing things totally differently. Um, and I don't think that we necessarily need to read it that way. Um, they could maybe see his point, and, but just completely disagree with him and say, no, 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 we don't accept that as a badge of your shame. I know that's what you think, but no, 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 we think that that's a token of honor, and we're going to show our solidarity with you and show how much we disagree with your assessment of yourself by showing that we all want to stand side by side with you. But, but there's no resolution to that. And at the end of the poem, we're left with Gowan and his girdle, feeling bad, and everybody else with their green girdles feeling good about him. And that gap is never really closed. Christine? Um, I saw his stubborn shame more figuratively, and I saw it as a sign of, I guess, his like newfound like humility, which, you know, they even say in here that it was... Um, Morgan's uh, aim was to, uh, what was it exactly, to test their pride. Yeah. And that's, and humility is the antithesis of pride, and he seems to have learned his lesson in humility. Well, not. Yeah. Well, see, this is tricky. If Max's right, then his problem is pride, actually. That is, if he's not willing to submit to God, but if he's all sort of focused on his own virtue by his own power, that would be ultimately an arrogant perspective, which is the problem. But I agree, and actually I want to come back to Morgan in a second, because that's, so that's, that's the place I want to really end up and focus on. But before we get there, I want to look at the very end. We get one image which I think is interesting, and I think non-random. It can seem random, but I think it's very not random in the context, and that's the... Well, Matt, go ahead, before we... I, I just want to say something about humility. Sure. Uh, I think it might... I think the way in which humility is really, like, overtly conspicuous and kind of a put-on. 
So Christine's doing it at the beginning of the poem, too. He steps up and he's like, I'm the worst knight in the entire court. I'm the weakest. I'm the stupidest. I'm the most expendable. <laughs> and then as soon as he leaves the court, he gives his shield with a symbol on it that says how awesome he is. So he's just like, yeah, he's getting up and saying, look how humble I am. And he's like, but check out all this awesome stuff. Look how great I am. And even if he's not arrogant about that, it's clear from everybody else's assessment that nobody actually agrees that he's the biggest loser in the court, which is, in fact, what he says. Emma? And then kind of on that line, like, the token of humility is a sash that makes it so he can't, pretty much can't fail in battle. <laughs> like, I'm, so, I'm so humble, and I'm winning everything! <laughs> yeah. And it's actually, you know, one interesting question is, does the girdle have magical powers? It could just... And I'm not sure, actually. I don't know for sure. Now, it it's, sounds like it could just be a put-on. That would seem very plausible. Huh? Yeah, he didn't, he didn't have to. That was the thing. Yeah, right, the girdle's supposed to protect him from harm, right? But the green knight gave him a scar. And plus the green knight could have just, as he, he could have just like put that there like intentionally, like he didn't have to use all four full force. Like we don't actually know if the green knight put all his like effort into it. So we don't actually have a test of whether the girdle is actually magical. It's true that we do never see a test. Plus, it's just as plausible that the axe is just as magic as the kernel. <laughs> this, is, this is my magic axe of... My magic non-lethal axe, right? Uh, which has the power of looking very intimidating and yet only barely wounding people. That would be a peculiar <laughs> magical object. But, you know, there are peculiar magical objects in fairy stories, so you can't rule that out either. Um... No, I think this is where I want to get back to... Th- well, wait, 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 no. Before I get back to thinking about the fairies, I want to, I want to mention the business about the, the last image that I was just saying. Um, if you look at the very end, our very final image. We end, we return briefly to Brutus and then to Troy, where we began. That is, at the end of the poem, we put Arthur's court back into its larger and glorious historical context, and then we end with a prayer. We've seen this before in the other poems that we've read. Um, But we're given this one particular image. We pray to Christ, and how do we identify Christ? Knew that bear the crown of thorn, he bring us to his bliss. Amen crown of thorns. Why the crown of thorns? Of all the things to identify Christ by, why the crown of thorns? And I think that if one thinks about this, I find it anyway hard not to connect that with the green girdle itself, which has a lot of similarities to the crown of thorns when you think about it. Why is Christ given the crown of thorns? What's up with the crown of thorns? Now, I, I, I ask this, knowing that there are people in here who took foundations and should remember. Um, so if you haven't, don't worry. If you have, I'm looking at you. <laughs> Katie. They gave him the crown of thorns to mock him being king of the Jews. Yes. It is in, in one of the phases of Christ's pre, like, 
his day prior to crucifixion. He's given over to the Roman soldiers who mock him. Um, they, they weave a, 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 a crown made of thorns and they ram it down on his head and they give him a reed to hold as a scepter and they put a robe on him and they're all like fake bowing down to him and stuff and they're hitting him and beating him and mocking him. Um, that's where he gets the crown of thorns. But of course, the crown is significant on this day and the reason they're mocking him in this particular way is that what's, the, what's, what's on the placard? Uh, the, uh, uh, criminals who are crucified, which is a you know, way to like, make public spectacles of them. It's a deterrent mechanism. Um, so you put what they did on a placard over their head. Um, in, in, it's written in, in, in Latin and Greek and Hebrew so that everybody can read it, the locals and the governors and the soldiers and everybody. Um, what does Jesus' placard say? Jesus. Go ahead. Jesus of Nazareth, King of, King of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Right? Um, and there's that famous moment where the Pharisees are like, no, no, you should say he called himself the King of the Jews. And Pilate famously says, what I have written, I have written. Right? Um, you know, he is, he is the king. The crown of thorns points to... It's a mockery of glorification... It's a twisting of it. It brings suffering. It's a mark. It's a fake mark of glory. I get the, the sash to Gowan is like the crown of thorns that he takes on himself. He considers it, it's almost a mockery what the rest of the court is doing. Oh, no, see, what? this is a badge of honor. It's not a badge of honor. It's suffering for him. He wears it so that he always remembers I really like thinking about this. I can think about this more. But I want to get back to the bigger question and back to uh, sort of thinking through this in the context that we're reading it in, that is, as a fairy story, in connection with these other fairy stories that we've read. What do we get about the resolution of the fairy plot? What are these fairies up to? Because they're all, they're up to something. They orchestrated this whole thing. They initiated it. They arranged it. Who's they? Who arranged it? Who's running this show? Morgan Le Fay. Morgan Le Fay. Morgan the goddess, as she is called. And who was she? Arthur's half-sister. She's Arthur's half-sister. She's your aunt, we are reminded, right? Gowan is reminded, hey, come back and hang out with your aunt. Which one was she? You. She was the old ugly one, which you'll remember it was described even as we were getting the descriptions of how old and unattractive she was, especially in the company that she always kept. She was also given great honor. And at the, at the Christmas feast, she's the one who is sitting in the seat of honor uh, at the table. This is why Sir Gowan... Uh, gets to sit with the lady, you know, halfway down the table, and they get, you know, have their pleasant conversation during the meal because it's the old woman who is, who is, turns out to be Morgan, who is placed at the seat of honor. Why'd she do this? She's the one calling the shots here. So the reason Bertolac is going is that she was hoping that the sight of his talking severed head would scare Winnipeg to death. It was an assassination attempt. 
a very elaborate and possibly implausible assassination attempt. That seems weird, doesn't it? Is it just me? That seems weird. Jordan? It seems like the medieval equivalent of snakes on a plane with you. Okay, I don't want to explore the parallels there, but. <laughs> no, 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 that's one of the things I don't want to establish, actually. <laughs> Quick, let's return to sanity. Just that, what, what did you want to say there? Just that I felt like this was a whole lot of stuff, if that was the only goal. Yeah. There, there are, one doesn't even need to begin to count the number of ways that one could uh, off Guinevere more efficiently than that, right? Um, clearly there's more at stake than just we're really hoping that she dies. And one of the things, certainly, which seems to point to that is the fact that she doesn't die, right? I mean, if that was the plan, it was a bad one. Um, Though remember, this puts in an interesting context Arthur's response at the end of the first part, right? When he's self-consciously saying, Guinevere's real freaked out right now, Come on, Gowan, let's laugh. Ha, 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 this is all funny, right? Nothing to scare anybody to death here, right? And they, so he's sort of self-consciously deflecting the horror of this moment from Guinevere. So, if that's a test, Arthur passed it. And of course, again, that's one of the things that's been so consistent all the way through. This stuff has all been tests. Tests within tests, Right? The final outcome of the big first test, that is the decapitation game test, turns out to have been determined by the internal test, the let's swap things in the evening test. And you know, all along we've been talking about it in terms of test and like what is being tested and how do you pass and what does failure look like and what are the terms of this. That seems to be sort of the invitation we're given all the way through. That's how they talk about it. It's certainly how the Green Knight talks about it at the end when he's kind of doing his, uh, you know, revelation of things. Matt? Well, though Bertillac claims it was a test of the round table as collective, it seems like um, it was not so much a test of the group as a test of the individual. Because, I mean, since he's a, quote, pearl among thieves, you're not going to get much data on the rest of the table to just test him. And uh, in the previous stories we've read, it seems that the bears are actually really interested in exceptional individuals. So maybe this was like a, a quick fact-finding mission to see, hey, if there's one of the guys who wants to steal away the bear, we should, we should uh, explore this. Right, yeah, we're going to put him in our collection. You know, we've already got, like, we already got Lanfal, we, uh, you know, we, we had the, well, we had Herodas for a while, right? Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, possibly, possibly. Well? Although when we're like, when Burdlack first enters the, the hall and pitches his challenge, um, we're told that um, they, they talk about Gwen and they say Gwen that sat by the queen. So, um, in my mind, that could be another uh, another harkening back to Morgan Le Fay's uh, hate for Gwenevere. Uh, Gwen was next to her. Maybe they thought Gwen was her. Well, and that's... It is interesting. We're told... Lancelot's mentioned once by name, but we're not told anything about him. We're not given any indication. Are we to understand? 
the the Lancelot Guinevere adultery subplot of the Arthurian court is very well established. I mean, it's not even a question of it's being established. The character of Lancelot was invented by Chrétien de Troyes as like the dude who would be the the knight who would be the courtly lover of the queen. Like that's that was now his character grew to something more than that over time, but. It's the whole premise of Lancelot's character. So the fact that Lancelot is mentioned as being there, unlike notice in Sir Fall, where Guinevere is just sort of, you know, has like an open door policy uh, and isn't connected to one particular knight, there, we don't see Lancelot, right, um, in Sir Fall. But, but anyway, we don't know. I mean, is this, is this, are we supposed to understand that Guinevere is engaged in her you know, a bit sketchy, even if not quite so sketchy as in Sir Lanfall activities, um, and that therefore Morgan Le Fay's concern about Guinevere is sort of morally justified? Maybe, maybe. Is Gowan possibly in that sort of... I mean, he's the one who is the premier knight in the court. Um, yeah, I mean, is there some implication that he is sitting by the queen? Now, that's a place of honor. He's a great knight. He's a close kinsman of Arthur. No reason why he wouldn't be. Nothing necessarily sketchy there, but uh, that is an interesting touch. Notice also, though, what was, what was plan A when the green knight rides into the court? What's plan A? What's he there to do? Is it challenge Arthur specifically? Yes. The challenge is to Arthur. Arthur takes it as he should. As he should as it seems clearly the Green Knight expects. And remember also, when Gowan steps forward and says, I'll do it instead, he, change, he the Green Knight, changes the terms. The terms were, he was going to come back to the court to decapitate Arthur in a year. So this was going to be a, spect- a court spectacle. When it's Gowan instead of Arthur, now, different terms. You come find me. You by stepping forward and taking on this test, just got yourself a, well, at least a one-way ticket to ferry, right? Arthur wasn't going. It was coming to him again. And that, I think, is, a, is an interesting point and, and suggests that the terms of the test for Sir Gowan are not necessarily the same terms as they would have been for Arthur. I must let you go. Uh, I will see you on Monday. Right, what's... What, Let's come back to this a little bit next time. Um, we are taking an enormous leap forward. Uh, enjoy your weekend and the like 500 years that will pass before we see each other again. All right. Well, in the next class, we will bid a fond and tearful farewell to the Middle Ages and leap forward several centuries to the fairy books of Andrew Lang, compiled in the late 19th century. I'm guessing you're going to find the reading rather suddenly takes you a good deal less time at this point in the course. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.